This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Enes Cantor Freedom starts our show today. He's a Turkish-American professional basketball player who spent more than a decade in the NBA. He was drafted third overall in 2011 and went to the Utah Jazz. From there, his career as center took him to the Oklahoma City Thunder, New York Knicks, Portland Trailblazers, and the Boston Celtics. So in the United States, Enes Cantor Freedom is a star. But in Turkey... He's a wanted man and considered a terrorist by the Turkish government, which is why the Turkish government has put a half-million-dollar bounty on his head. And Enes Kantor Freedom joins us now. Welcome to On Point. Thank you for having me. Now, we can't disclose the location that you're joining us from because of yes. the danger that you're under regarding uh, the bounty that's been put on your head. Why does the Turkish government consider you to be such a dangerous person? Well, I mean, they declare me as a terrorist just because of I talk about the human rights violations and political prisoners over there. You know, I'm a basketball player and I have nothing to do with politics. I have never in my life talked about politics in the United States or anywhere else. But just because of the NBA platform, just because of everything I speak becomes a big conversation uh, anywhere else in the world. So they really hate that. Mm -hmm. So they're literally trying to do everything they can to silence me. So I was like, you know what? This is a God's gift and I'm going to use it for good. What kind of things have you said that you think uh, have drawn the ire of President Erdogan and the Turkish government? You know, there are many human rights violations that are happening over there in Turkey right now. If you look at all the, you know, the uh, groups like uh, the Kurdish people, uh, Gulen movement, seculars, or many other ones are being persecuted by Erdogan regime, you know. And also, if you're in Turkey, and if you say anything against the Turkish government, you'll be in jail the next day. But if you're outside of Turkey, and if you say anything, they put your name on Interpol list mm. with red notice. So any country you go to, if they have an extradition deal with Turkey, then you will be deported back to Turkey, and you will become a political prisoner the rest of your life. And I am so shocked about it. You're shocked about it. Okay. Well, because because th- these countries out there, you know, like Turkey, Iran, Russia, and China, they use an Interpol to hunt, uh, hunt their uh, opponents. And how can Interpol is, you know, abiding that? Yeah. By the way, I didn't mean to sound surprised at your shock um, because, yeah. because I mean, the truth is it, it probably does come as a shock to ma- many Americans that just mm-hmm. for, you know, someone saying what they believe about uh, yeah. uh, either, you know, our own government or any other international government that can land you on a terrorist list, right? Because you've, right. Been, you've been put on Turkey's 2023 most wanted terrorist list. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. there are... Other, there are some actual terrorists on the, the, that list. There's uh, many yep. journalists, uh, I yep. know. So, like, everyone's being lumped yes. together by the Erdogan government. I mean, I remember I was actually doing a basketball camp in the Vatican, and, and I met the Pope. The next day, they put my name on, on that list. Uh, most wanted, I guess, a terrorist list. I remember having a conversation with the FBI, and they said, get back to America immediately. Because that is going to trigger a lot of, I guess, mafias or serial killers. Um, and the next flight, I took it, came to America. And uh, now every place I go, I have to get in touch with the FBI and say, hey, I'm going to this city. I'm going to that city. I'm going to out of a country. 
So they they have to follow my every step, and it, it is unacceptable because I was um, I had a hearing um, in the Senate, and I asked the, the the senators and congressmen. I was like, listen, how can a foreign government can put a bounty on a U.S. citizen's head in America? You know, they had no answer. This question has been asked to Secretary Blinken and many of the you know the cabinet members, but we had not heard anything. Uh, from them, because it is unacceptable. They literally put my life in danger in America, and I'm a U.S. citizen. Right. So it seems like what you're what you're saying is that uh, the FBI thinks there is a clear danger or threat to your life. Oh, of course. Yeah. Have yes. you? Has anything happened? Uh, any kind of? Uh, I hope not. But any kind of close calls or or anything mm-hmm. that uh, that you think was was uh, came near to actually be threatening your safety here in the well, United States. Lot- well, online, yes, of course. Yeah. I get death threats, you know, daily, you know, from not only Erdogan's government, but many other dictatorships out there. And also, I don't know if you guys remember that or not, but when I was playing for Boston Celtics, I went to a mosque. And there's actually videos out there. And when I got out of a mosque, the, the Erdogan supporters uh, verbally attacked me and one of my teammates, you know. Mm. And I wanted to take a picture and or video and show that to the whole world because sometimes whenever I speak, people think I'm exaggerating and they think there's nothing going to happen to me in America. I was like, you know what? Let me just take a video and and post it so whole the world can see it. You know, mm-hmm. um, so they there his goons are everywhere in America and any other country. I mean, we are lucky to live in America, but many other countries, you know, people are being kidnapped. Mm-hmm. You know, just just recently, one of my friends just got kidnapped in Tajikistan, and they sent him back to uh, Turkey. Now he he's going to become a political prisoner the rest of his life. Wow. Well, you know, you said we're lucky to be living in the United States, but the question mm-hmm. is, is that luck running out, right? Because we wanted to have you, we wanted to invite you to help us start today's show because yeah. of growing concern amongst, you know, the FBI, yeah. and you know this better than anyone, that uh, you know they call it transnational repression, that uh-huh. people living in the United States... Uh, are no longer, you know, guaranteed total safety from uh, actions by foreign governments. Now, now mm-hmm. let me also ask you something else, Ennis, if I may. It sounds like you're under, uh, you, you have to have some additional kinds of security now. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So the threat is definitely real. You've yes. also said that it's not only the Turkish government, which has mm-hmm. um, uh, put you under threat, but you're not currently in the NBA right now, and you say that's no. because of comments that you've made about China. Right. Tell me more mm-hmm. about that. So it's actually very crazy because once I started to talk about China, I sit down with some of the government officials, uh, and they literally brief me about which government can hurt me in what way. Uh, because I don't only talk about Turkey, I talk about the problems that are happening in China, Russia, Iran, and many other dictatorships. So I remember sitting down and having a conversation with these uh, government officials. They're like, listen, going forward, here's some of the challenges you are going to face. Um, the first topic, so they literally briefed me one by one uh, what government can hurt me in what way. They said, well, the first one is China. They said, going forward. You will be getting text messages, DMs, um, you know, tweets or random phone calls from one of the most beautiful girls in the world. Do not answer any of them. They are Chinese spies. And that 
that messed me up so much. Now, every time I get a message, I don't know if they are really like messaging me for myself or that they're literally out there to get me. The second one was Russia. They said they cannot do it in America, but when you go outside of America, like special, like overseas somewhere, when you go to a restaurant, do not go to that restaurant again. I was like, why? Well, they said because they can track you, track you and they can poison you. They said, Iran, Iran don't play with women or or poisons. They will come and literally shoot you, which they actually tried to one of my friends. Her name is Masi. Um, she's pretty famous uh, journalist. Uh, and the third one, fourth one was um, North Korea. They said, well, you know, they will try to hack your phone if you ever uh, t- 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 talk about them. So it's been, I was just, I was just shocked. They listened to all these like stories uh, and stuff, but I was like, you know what? The threat is real. And now, like, I, I don't know if you guys heard about it or not, but after all this, like, threats and death threats, especially coming from Turkey, I had a conversation with FBI. And when I was playing basketball, they had to come to my place and they set up this thing called panic button. Uh-huh. They said, whenever you feel uncomfortable, push that button. We'll be there in two, three minutes. There was a button right next to my bed. And in one in the living room, they said, whenever you feel uncomfortable, push that button. We'll be there. And it's very crazy to me because I live in the most freest country in the world, uh, America. But I had to live with a panic button right next to my bed to feel safe. Hmm. And we got to do something about it. This is unacceptable. Wow. Okay. So just to give people a a sense as to the kinds of comments, again, that we take for granted that we can say in the United States that have Mm -hmm. drawn this... Um, sort of dangerous attention that you're getting from these various governments. Regarding uh, Erdogan, for example, in Turkey, you've gone so far <laughs> as to call him the Hitler of of of, Tur- of the Turkish nation. In China, with your criticism of China, it's actually been very public, right? I think on your on yeah. your shoes, you've written, uh-huh. you know, no Beijing 2022, yeah. free Tibet, etc. Now the NBA, as you know, has publicly said, well, they've never. They've never said that you shouldn't uh, communicate your political or personal feelings and that they support your right to say these things, but you're still critical of them. Well, the reason is the NBA will only care about things until it hits their pocket. When there were all the you know Black Lives Matter protests were happening, NBA was the first organization went out there and said, you know, we encourage every other player to go out there and protest. But when China thing happened, you know, they knew that they were going to lose a lot of sponsorships, TV deals, which they did. Because once I started to talk about, you know, the human rights violations in China, you know, the, the this Chinese government took out all the Boston Celtics game of television. And that costed NBA millions of dollars. So look at the numbers. More people watch NBA games in China than American population last year. And they canceled every Boston Celtics game. It's huge, uh-huh. you know. So, and forget forget the NBA, MBPA, the Player Association, was calling me and say, "Do not wear those shoes ever again." I was like, "Am I breaking any rules?" They said, "No, but you cannot wear them ever again." So, it was it was I was very shocked because NBA. I thought NBA was standing with justice, with freedom, democracy. It's all a lie. Trust me. Until it hits their pocket. They're going to advocate whatever they believe in. But when they when it hits their pocket, they're going to be silenced. And they will silence anyone who goes against their agenda. Mm. Well, Ennis Cantor Freedom, a celebrated center for the NBA until last year. Ennis, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. No, thank you for having me. 
Well, uh, Ennis helped us kick off the story today because we are talking exactly about the growth in the kinds of things that he personally has been experiencing. The FBI calls it transnational repression or foreign governments threatening the security, safety and even lives of people living in the United States. So when we come back, we're going to talk a lot more about why that's growing, what it looks like and the complications that lead it to be difficult for U.S. authorities to do much about it. So we'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the growth in transnational oppression. And joining us now is Yana Gar... Excuse me, Yana Garahovskaya. Did I get close on that one, Yana? You got very close. Okay, yeah. I, and forgive me, because with the last name Chakrabarty, I do try hard to uh, to honor the, protect, the proper pronunciation of other people's names, so feel free to correct me at any time. But anyway, Yana is Senior Research Analyst at the nonprofit advocacy group Freedom House, and her work focuses on transnational repression in the U.S. and around the world. So, Yana, welcome. And first and foremost, how would you define what transnational repression is? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, transnational repression is uh, a term that we use to describe an array of tactics used by governments to reach across borders in order to silence dissent. And that could be among activists, um, dissidents, journalists, and students, and, and others. Mm. Now, I have to be honest, our producer, Steph Katsonis, who put this hour together, has been talking about this for a while. And um, it didn't really sort of register on my, my list of pressing issues until just this month. There was this news story that the U.S. thwarted a plot recently to kill a Sikh separatist who was, who's living on U.S. soil. The plot was, uh, was by the Indian government. Can you tell us more about that, Yana? Yeah, so the Indian government, I mean, so the big news was a few months ago when the Canadian government, actually, Justin Trudeau, announced in Parliament that they suspected the Indian government of having uh, assassinated a Sikh leader in British Columbia in the summer. And that sparked off uh, a series of stories um, and, and sort of news reporting about uh, threats against the Sikh community here in the United States, including this latest report. Um, and India is sort of an interesting case because I think, as your previous conversation, 
conversation demonstrated, when we think about transnational repression, we often think about authoritarian governments, not um, you know democratic partners of the United States. But in fact, um, a whole range of governments uh, engages in transnational repression. Freedom House has identified actually 38 governments who have um, undertaken acts of transnational repression across 91 countries since 2014. Okay. And those acts in go so far as from what on the mild case to what on the severe cases? Well, the transnational repression includes everything from coercion of family members, uh, threats, harassment, both in person and online, um, and then everything like assassination, assassination attempts, assaults, detentions, renditions, um, unlawful deportations. We at Freedom House only track the direct physical incidents. So these are not things that happen online or threats against family, partly because those are very hard to verify. Um, and so we feel comfortable in saying that there's been at least 854 incidents since 2014 of just the direct physical um, acts of transnational repression that we can verify. Okay, and is and those are things that are those are eight hundred plus acts around the world, around the world. Okay. Yes, that it's much more common in um, sort of authoritarian neighborhoods. So if you think about Southeast Asia or the Middle East, um, where countries that are like minded in terms of their disregard for the rule of law and human rights can cooperate together to target people, but these are these things also happen in the U.S., in Canada, in Europe, um, you know, in democracies where people I think tend to feel more secure. Are those things happening more in, say, North America, Canada, and the United States? Because it seems like when something like a a successful assassination in Canada and a thwarted attempted one by the Indian government, presumably, in the United States, that doesn't show up in the news very often. So are are countries feeling more emboldened to uh, try to physically harm uh, dissidents or activists in the United States? I think to a certain degree that, that that's true, in part because uh, there's a lack of accountability for transnational repression. So if you think back to, you know, the heinous murder of Jamal Khashoggi, mm-hmm. um, who was killed in Istanbul, um, you know, the Saudi government, at first there was a big backlash and reaction to that. But in general, the Saudi government has not really paid a price for that. Um, if you think about the targeting, you know, Anise uh, mentioned Masi Alinejad, who lives uh, here uh, in New York. She has been the subject of at least two plots, one a kidnapping plot and one, it seems like, uh, a thwarted assassination plot in the last two years by the Iranian government. And the Iranian government is already under a lot of sanctions, but there hasn't been a specific reaction in terms of, you know, the, the transnational repression kind of aspect of it. And so I think awareness is going up. You know, you're, you have the FBI paying a lot of attention to this issue, but there's the other side of it, which is the accountability for the foreign government that's undertaking this. Okay, so this is where it becomes very, very murky and complex, right? Because in the case of the uh, the thwarted assassination plot here in the United States, um, U.S. authorities were in touch with the Indian government saying that, you know, we know something's going on. The Indian government um, says, well, activities of that nature aren't uh, it, part of their policy at the activities being threatening the lives of uh, people living in the United States. But I think the 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 complexity comes with how, in this example, uh, the the Indian government sees uh, the Sikh activists who are living in the United States, right? I'm seeing a foreign ministry statement uh, that says, yes, the U.S. raised information um, 
to the Indian government, but that information had to do with a, quote, nexus between organized criminals, gun runners, terrorists, and others. And the, the, the statement went on to say that information it was a cause for concern for both countries, and India takes it seriously. So, I mean, is this an issue of foreign governments uh, see, seeing uh, activists as uh, as a greater threat than the United States would see those same people? I think this is uh, this is foreign governments learning to uh, speak the language of anti-terrorism and extremism. A lot of people who are targeted in this way um, are targeted uh, are labeled first. Um, terrorists or extremists or members of a terrorist organization. And that taps into this very securitized international network of cooperation between governments, whether that's Interpol, whether that's other forms of legal cooperation. It is a a tool. When governments label someone a terrorist or an extremist, um, it it, they know they know what they're doing essentially there, and the acts for which these people are labeled as terrorists or extremists are often things that we think of as just normal free speech, normal activism. You know, journalists reporting on things, or you know, average people talking about human rights violations in a different country. That's why they're being labeled, uh, you know, extremists and terrorists. So it must be asked then, Yana, has the United States participated in the same kind of transnational repression? Well, I want to be clear that the United States, as far as uh, as we know, has not perpetrated transnational repression, which is the targeting of your own citizens abroad um, with force or with threats. But I do think it's fair to say that the uh, uptick in you know rhetoric about terrorism um, and sort of increased international cooperation has made some of these uh, acts of transnational repression easier or uh, just more possible. Okay, but weren't there, I mean, hasn't the United States definitely assassinated U.S. citizens abroad as uh, saying that they were uh, targets of, of, as you mentioned earlier, the the war on terror? Yes, but those have been in uh, areas of conflict uh, or sort of active uh, war. Okay, so so that that's considered different, even though that citizen never got a chance to you know, make their case in a in a court. Yeah. I, so again, I want to be clear that, you know, violations of the rule of law and, and not kind of following normal procedure to actually put someone before a court and, um, you know, play out their entire case, that that's problematic. Um, but targeting someone because of their speech is is very different um, from those scenarios. Okay. Understood. But it, it, I guess what I'm trying to needle in here is that is gets back to what you were saying, is that governments are using the same kinds of language to justify their actions on uh, on uh, people living here on U.S. soil. Right, right. But the United States and other democracies, as far as I'm aware, or, you know, the sort of um, more established democracies are not trying to silence their dissidents living abroad. I mean, I think you can you can badmouth the United States wherever you live um, without kind of fearing reprisals. So it is different in that sense. But I do think that the security structure that was established with the war on terror is one that we have to now think about how that um, is facilitates the acts of autocrats when they're trying to track down. Uh, dissidents and activists abroad. Right. No, I appreciate you uh, uh, engaging in this particular exploration with me, Yana, because sure. um, this is, you know, this may, may be one of those things where U.S. exceptionalism applies in a good way. <laughs> that we're, you know, we're not actually targeting, um, hopefully, people uh, living abroad who say 
who speak their mind uh, about the U.S. But I want you to stand by here, Jana, if you can, for a moment, because let's quickly hear a story from uh, someone who's experiencing transnational repression from the Chinese government. Her name is not actually Leslie, but that's what we're going to be calling her because uh, she is deeply concerned about her security. She's a Chinese national living and working in the United States, and she's part of a loosely organized group of political activists who have held protests in U.S. cities against the Chinese government. Now, she's so concerned about her safety that we have uh, masked her voice and um, her words are being read by another person. They found out some evidence showing that I spoke against the Chinese government's zero-COVID policy and human rights violations. They came to my parents and said, we think your child is jeopardizing national security. So they keep interrogating me through my parents, saying like, did you post this? Did you say this? Did you do that? Do you own that Twitter account? Everyone in my family is kind of worried and scared. So Leslie, they're talking about how the Chinese government isn't just targeting her, but her family in China as well. She also told us she's surprised at how Chinese authorities can infiltrate American social media apps to spy on its citizens in the U.S. I was surprised at how deep they can penetrate social media here to find us. I'm not so surprised that they want to do that. Because within China, they monitor almost literally everyone's laptop and cell phones to figure out what we're talking about. So, I'm surprised, but also not so surprised. And Leslie finally told us that they are so, she is so concerned about her safety and her fellow activists are as well. They don't even use their real names with each other. I think everyone is afraid of the Chinese government's transnational repression. It's common sense that if you say something against the Communist Party, then you never use your real name and you never show your face on the Internet. Unless all your family either has already cut ties with you or they're not living in China. As long as you have something you really care about living inside China, then don't expose yourself. That's U.S.-based Chinese political activist Leslie. Again, not her real name. Well, joining us now is Roman Rojavsky, section chief in the FBI's counterintelligence division. And by the way, we have a link to the FBI's website on transnational repression. That's at onpointradio.org. Roman, welcome to On Point. Hi, Magna. Thank you so much for having me. So let me ask you, let's say about a decade ago or a decade and a half ago, uh, how much was the FBI working on transnational repression? Uh, not Definitely not as much as right now. We, we did have individual cases, but we never connected them together, you know, that they were part of these campaigns by foreign governments and their intelligence services. So then what changed? It sounds like something or, or the awareness grew substantially around 2020. Right. We started seeing that these were concerted campaigns and that, you know, people were being repeatedly targeted 
for speaking out on U.S. soil. Uh, and the tactics were similar in them being targeted. For example, you know, as we heard from from the victims you've had on the show, on social media, online threats, their families being threatened. Um, one other tactic that we've repeatedly seen was hiring private investigators to surveil the victims and to intimidate them. Um, can you tell me, I don't know if you can mention specifics about any particular cases that you've worked on, but it, it'd be helpful to get a deeper understanding of just how consuming um, trying to live with this kind of repression can be for the people who are experiencing it. Right. Um, I, I I can talk about some examples that, uh, from cases that we have publicly charged. Um, so... There is the example of the dissident in New York that was targeted by the Iranian government. And in that investigation, they hired a private investigator, told the private investigator that they were looking to recover a debt. And the private investigator surveilled the the dissident who actually noticed the surveillance and came to us. So, you know, we had counter surveillance. We ran into the private investigator. We talked to him and he helped us identify the plotters um, who were led by an intelligence officer from Iran. Uh, So that case we publicly charged. And it's important for us to, even, even though the intelligence officer is in Iran, but it allowed us to tell the story that it was the government that was perpetrating this and we're going after this dissident just, you know, for speaking their mind. Mm. And and um, that's not the only one, obviously, that has been publicly charged. There have been other indictments as well, right, Roman? Right. We've had um, several. For example, last year we um, announced three different indictments um, in, in 2022 against um, officials from the PRC government who were, um, in one of those cases, they tried to interfere in... Um, the campaign of a former Tiananmen Square protester who was running for Congress in New York. Um, They hired a private investigator there as well and tried to obtain derogatory information so they could derail this person's campaign because they didn't like his politics. Um, In that case, the private investigator also worked with us and we were able to warn the victim and um, and prevent the disruption of their campaign. Okay, because that leads me to a question that uh, we're receiving uh, via social media from one of our listeners who says, um, I'm not sure what people who are experiencing this think the U.S. government can do about what these foreign governments are doing. I mean, Roman, what's your response to that? Well, I would say we have arrested uh, the people that were involved on U.S. soil. For example, um, the third case that I just mentioned um, involved the PRC government hiring a witting private investigator who burned down a dissident statue. This dissident had built a statue to protest um, the PRC's COVID policies, and the private investigator burned it down, and he was arrested, and um, he has actually pleaded guilty and will be sentenced. So, um, you know, the U.S. government can... Uh, we, we will do everything in our power to protect the victims from, you know, physical threats. Um, and then we will we will go after the foreign government officials who are orchestrating the activity, you know, to tell the story. Mm. No, and Roman, very briefly, just yes or no, and then we'll carry it over into the next uh, segment. But in this case that you're talking about, was a federal law enforcement officer part of this kind of plot against the, the dissident? 
Yes, that's right. There was also a federal law enforcement officer that was charged and arrested. Okay, so I want to hear more about that when we come back from the break. So Roman Rojavsky and Yana Gorohovskaya, we'll be right back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the growth of transnational repression as experienced by people here in the United States. And transnational repression being uh, the use of whether it be uh, influence for sometimes even the threat of uh, assassination by foreign governments on people living in the United States. And I'm joined today by Yana Gorohovskaya. She's senior research analyst at the nonprofit advocacy group Freedom House that tracks acts of transnational repression. And Roman Rojavsky is with us as well, a section chief in the FBI's counterintelligence division. And Yana, I promise to come back to you in a minute, but I just have another couple of quick questions for Roman about the case that you were talking about, Roman, before the, the break. The involvement of the federal law enforcement officer, along with that pr- private investigator, both of them were charged in, uh, in violations of U.S. law uh, in assisting the Chinese government in uh, harassing this, the dissident here in the United States. What was the motivation of the law enforcement officer, Roman? So to give a little context, so the the victim in the in this in this uh, particular case was also a former Tiananmen Square protester, but this person wasn't vocal in any way. Um, and they have a daughter who was set to compete in the Beijing Olympics in 2022, and the PRC government really wanted to know if that person would travel with his daughter, presumably so they could arrest him. Um, so they hired a private investigator to try to find out whether this person was traveling. Um, they posed as an Olympic Committee official to try to interview the victim, and, and we had warned the victim because we knew this was happening. So then a different private investigator they hired reached out to the federal law enforcement officer and asked them to help by checking a database that would show whether the person was traveling or not. So um, that's this is just an example of how far-reaching uh, transnational repression is and how 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 many how much resources these governments are putting into it because it's such a priority for them. Okay. So this question is still lingering in my mind about why we're seeing a growth of these actions here in the United States. And, and 
I presume neither of you argue against that we're seeing a growth in it. Because, I mean, does it indicate some sort of just uh, like uh, growth in confidence by these foreign governments? Or is it a weakening of uh, the ability of the United States to protect these folks? I mean, what do you think it is, Roman? Um, all of those reasons are are probably a part of it. I think the biggest part, though, is, um, you know, as you said earlier in the show, to Americans, it's not a big deal to criticize the government. You know, it happens all the time. Uh, but in these other countries, it is a big deal. You know, if you criticize the government, you will be imprisoned. And they view it as a massive threat to their stability, and they want to stay in power. That's their number one goal. And so to them, you know, a dissident who has millions of followers on social media is a huge threat. And so they're willing to take bigger risks and to invest more resources into silencing them. Uh-huh. And the, and the fact is, it sounds like for many of these countries, for example, the ones that uh, Yana has been tracking— Given that they're nations like China, they have the they have the resources, right, to to undertake these kinds of actions. So it's a it's a marriage of authoritarianism and um, you know national growth of national resources. Well, I, I want to come back to in a minute the question of like what can be done, what can be done to uh, protect people who are living here in the United States from these kinds of actions by foreign governments. And in order to do that, we have one more story here of someone who has been able to take some action. She's Lucy Usoyan, Kurdish-American, and Lucy lives outside of Washington, D.C. She's self-employed, developing a line of cosmetic stores. And she's also around, she's one of about 20 people who is suing the Turkish government in a U.S. court after an incident involving Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. It was on May 16th, 2017, Erdogan was coming to visit White House. He was welcome to White House. And we didn't feel like he was welcome. So we went to join a peaceful protest there to express our own opinion um, and oppose it. And not only does Lucy say the protest was peaceful, but she says it was an act of freedom of speech guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. The protest ended very nicely. And then we, everyone was walking in the direction to catch the ride back, to have a lunch and then leave. And then as we were working, we passed the Sheridan Circle. And then we saw an opposing group. It was a support of Erdogan. It was his supporters. They were there. And there was a shout and verbal exchange. And then very quickly it switched to the physical brawl. And as Turkish President Erdogan looked on, his security detail rushed the dispersing protesters and physically assaulted them. There's some indication that it may have been Erdogan himself who ordered his staff to attack Lucy and the others. There was a video showing how he walks out of the car, he looks at us, and then he speaks to his security team. And like moments later, we, we see that the group just rushes through us his security team, actually. Lucy was caught off guard. I just didn't grasp the moment, and I didn't have a chance to run away. I was just knocked out and knocked off on the ground. And then I remember I was getting kicked in the head predominantly. And then I blacked out. And when I opened my eyes, I saw that people were bloodied. 
and I find myself on the, on the ground. Erdogan's security officials also attacked American security agents. The Turkish security officials then rushed to a waiting airplane at Joint Base Andrews and fled the country before they could be arrested. One U.S. agent described it as the fastest, quote, joint move and departure I've ever seen in my 16 years on the job, end quote. Well, Lucy and others filed suit against the Turkish government, but the Turkish government argued that they had they and their security team enjoyed diplomatic immunity, and they made that argument all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But they lost there, which has allowed Lucy Usoyan and other protesters to take further action. Myself and the rest of the plaintiffs, all of us which were present and we got physically attacked by the security guards of President Erdogan, we are suing the Turkish government in American courts. So that was Kurdish-American citizen Lucy Usoyan. She spoke with us from Alexandria, Virginia. So, Yana, are there other um, cases that have been able to, uh, by people who were the victims, that they've been able to successfully bring to a U.S. court that you know of? There's been other attempts, including um, trying to sue the the government of the Saudi Arabia in court. Mm-hmm. Um, there are obstacles, though, like the the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, which prevents people from suing a foreign government. But I do want to say that I think you know um, it shouldn't be the onus of victims to take up uh, this fight. I mean, I think it's great that people feel empowered to use American courts um, to try and seek some justice. But it's really uh, it's on the government of the United States to protect people who live inside its borders. And for that, we need um, an act of Congress. Essentially, we need um, policies. Right now, there's the Transnational Repression Policy Act which uh, has been tabled in Congress by Merkley, Haggerty, Rubio, and Cardin. Um, And that act would uh, set out a policy and coordinate action on transnational repression across uh, government agencies. And that's really, really important because right now we don't have um, we don't have that, despite the excellent work that the FBI and other agencies, including DHS, that have done on this topic. We don't have um, kind of a policy agenda. We don't have a definition that's codified of transnational repression. So we're, we're lacking these really fundamental tools. I see. Is that one of the things that makes even existent uh, prosecutions so challenging, Yana, because there isn't a clear legal framework around what exactly these governments have done that's, uh, uh, that's breaking U.S. law. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. So, you know, I think as uh, Rahman was saying, you can arrest people, you can charge people because, you know, things like stalking or assault or threats are still uh, are still crimes under U.S. law. But there's this added element of um, working on behalf of a foreign government. Uh-huh. And that's captured somewhat under FARA. But FARA is a really outdated, um, you know, regulation or law. And, and it wasn't intended for this. And it's really a transparency mechanism. It's not an accountability mechanism. And so there are gaps in U.S. law right now that may really going after this um, difficult. I see. Well, Roman, let me turn back to you because, uh, you know, earlier in the hour we heard Ennis Cantor Freedom talk about the amount of protection uh, he's getting from the FBI and the amount of cooperation that the FBI is giving him in, in regards to keeping him safe, keeping him alert, etc. But I imagine that this must be a little challenging for the FBI because, you know, folks who are 
on the receiving end of the transnational repression know that it's happening because of a foreign government, perhaps they might be reluctant to turn to another government, the U.S. government, for assistance. Yes, that is absolutely accurate. Um, I have done victim interviews where where they the victims have said that very thing where um, there's a lot of propaganda coming from, for example, the PRC government that says the FBI will work with us. And if you, you know, dare to say anything about us or if you go complain to them, they'll just turn you over to the PRC. So um, a large part of the reason I'm here is to, you know, get the word out and uh, to tell the public that this is a priority for the FBI and that we will do everything in our power to protect the victims. Um, and another thing that I want to say is one of the biggest problems is that a lot of people just haven't heard of transnational repression, so they don't realize that it's illegal and they don't realize it's a problem. And so sometimes when these cases are reported to, let's say, local law enforcement, um, at first blush, they sound like a civil dispute, right? Mm -hmm. Like you got into an argument with someone online about your political views, or even worse, sometimes they sound like the person is paranoid, you know, when they say I'm being followed. Um, so it's really important for, you know, for the F for us at the FBI to get the word out that, and to provide the context that these are foreign governments doing this. And once you have that context, whether you're, you know, local law enforcement or a private investigator, you know, when you see that the person targeted is a vocal dissident, it, it all makes sense. I see. You know, speaking of foreign governments, Yana, three names in particular have come up frequently in this hour. We talked about India. Turkey several times, and of course you mentioned Saudi Arabia as well. A complexity there is that those three nations are ostensibly U.S. allies. Does that make it more challenging to or, or limit, say, the FBI's power, the Department of Justice's power, or willingness to really pursue um, the governments that, that are engaging in this kind of repression? I haven't seen any um, sort of lack of action by the by the FBI. I think um, the FBI and other agencies domestically are doing a really great job on this. Um, you know, I think the point around people reporting is, is certainly a valid one. Um, you know, and there's lots of countries, I think, the big ones we're talking about, China, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Turkey, um, you know, those, Iran, those are our big players. But 38 governments around the world engage in transnational repression. These are places like Cambodia, um, Rwanda. You know, they're going after dissidents too. Um, the Central Asian countries, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, they're pursuing dissidents abroad. And it's, I think it's hard to convey to people that this is a serious problem, that all of these governments are going after um, after dissidents. And again, there is there is still a lack of accountability internationally on, on this issue, not only just from the United States, but from other countries as well. You know, this is a problem in the UK. This is a problem in France. It's certainly a problem in Germany where a dissident was attacked with a hammer by someone that was sent by a foreign government. You know, so this is a this is a worldwide mm. problem and it will require coordinated action between democracies. We've seen a little bit of that, you know, with the, uh, the second summit for democracy. We saw that a little bit at the G7, um, but much more action is needed. Right. I mean, your point's well taken uh, that this is happening uh, in a lot of different places. The UK, right? We have several examples of uh, poisonings and assassinations uh, by Russia on UK soil. So that's that, that much is clear. But you heard Ennis earlier say that 
um, he alleges that the NBA is unwilling to use whatever you know massive financial resources that it has, and I presume it's got pretty good connections in the U.S. government to do anything to protect him from you know sort of Chinese actions based on his criticisms of China, because China's such a huge market for the NBA. I mean that that has to lead to some. Uh, delicacy around the extent to which the U.S. can use diplomatic levers to protect folks, right? Sure. But I think that there, you know, I think we have to be a little bit more imaginative. There are a lot of different things that the United States can do. So one of the things that the U.S. can do is condition um, foreign security aid around this issue. So we, in some cases, are providing um, weapons and security cooperation to governments that perpetrate transnational repression. These are cases like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Rwanda. Um, we don't have to be providing those uh, that security aid. We don't have to be selling weapons, right? You can maintain, no one is saying, you know, you have to break off all diplomatic contact or you have to have, you know, all of these really severe measures. But there are a lot of tools in our toolkit and our diplomatic toolkit that we can be using um, that we aren't using right now. And going back to this issue for victims, you know, it, it sends a message, right? If you are being targeted by the Saudis in the United States and then you see the president of the United States visit Riyadh, that sends a message um, to you about how seriously your complaint, you know, if you were to go and, and kind of go to law enforcement about this, how seriously that would be taken. So I think that's that's another kind of issue we should be aware of. Mm. Well, we just have a few seconds, Roman. I want to give you the last word today. What do you want people to know uh, about the growth of transnational repression in the U.S.? I would just say um, transnational repression is an attack on democracy. You know, it's an attack on freedom of speech. And anyone who cares about preserving our democracy should care about stopping transnational repression. Um, and I would just like to say the FBI will do everything it can to protect victims. So we encourage everyone to come forward. Um, we've, you know, uh, yeah. you have our website listed. Um, there's also 1-800-CALL-FBI where we have specially trained the call yep. takers. Okay. So uh, we're here if you need us. Well, Roman Rojavsky, Section Chief at the FBI's Counterintelligence Division, thank you. And Yana Gorohovskaya at Freedom House, thank you as well. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.